I couldn't believe it. It was like one of those kind of hair on the back of your neck standing up moments. And we had just really hit it off throughout that whole day. And she just looked at me and she's like, you know, I really could use some help around here. If your internship in Spain didn't work out, maybe you would want to stay here. And I was just like, what? That's Elizabeth McGarry, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast, where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. These are people that inspire me and remind me that everything is possible. I hope that you will be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. Elizabeth McGarry is the creative director for York Athletics. Her career has been built in the high fashion and sportswear world, where she's been a designer and creative for brands such as Veronique Branquillo, Janssen Sports, Nike, Reebok, New Balance, Supra, and many more. She was featured as a panelist on the first ever Her by Bodega, co-hosted by Nike this past December, a night of hearing the perspectives of women in streetwear. She launched her own creative agency, McGarry & Sons, when she became pregnant with her second son, and it's been the go-to agency for reinventing your brand and taking it to the next level ever since. York Athletics has been a client of McGarry & Sons since its inception. Elizabeth decided at the end of last year to at least temporarily close up shop at McGarry & Sons and join her husband, who's the CEO of York, and work there full-time. The idea being that with the two of them 100% focusing on York, they can better balance life and being game changers in the footwear world. I have no doubts about that knowing the two of them. In this episode, she shares about her journey from suburban Oregon to high fashion in Europe to the queen of sportswear design. She also shares about her brave decision to become a mother in her early 20s, what it's like to close her first company to become a partner with her husband, the importance of raising two boys in a girl power world, and what it's like to now be a mentor in the industry she calls home. All that's coming up shortly. First, the Powerful Ladies podcast is brought to you by Boldly Fine. Boldly Fine is a small but mighty design and development agency based in Los Angeles, specializing in website design, brand development, e-commerce, and bringing big ideas from awesome people to life. For a 20% Squarespace discount or a free design consultation, visit BoldlyFine.com. Boldly Fine is who is the creative minds behind the Powerful Ladies website redesign, and I cannot be happier with choosing them to help us transform Powerful Ladies from the website that I designed on myself to the beautiful, awesome website that we have today. I cannot recommend them enough. I wasn't expecting video. So okay, I'll perfect. We can go no video. <laughs> you look lovely. You know, I like looking at your face. I'm like, <laughs> kind of freaking out at my own. <laughs> okay, ready? We will turn off the cameras. One, two, three. Okay. <laughs> So I met you when we were both working at Reebok, and then I ended up working with your husband, Mark, for a ton of years at Puma. But I would mm-hmm. love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah. Um, so hi, everyone. Kara, I'm so proud of you and excited that this has evolved into being what where you're taking it next, because we've been, what, in touch over with two powerful ladies for the last several years. Um but yeah, I'm a creative director and a mother and a wife and a collaborator living in Boston, but a West Coast girl at heart. And um, yeah, I've just been 
working my way through the sportswear industry for the last, oh my God, like <laughs> years, I guess now. Um, started off in fashion, had absolutely no interest ever working for a sportswear brand, having grown up about a mile from Nike campus. It just wasn't fashion or um even design to me. And lo and behold, I ended up there in the early 2000s and really appreciated that experience. And it just kind of like set me off on a, on a new, new track in my career, um, which has led me to Boston. So bouncing around at all the different sportswear brands as an apparel designer. And that um, evolved into consulting with startup brands. And then now I'm the creative director of, of a brand with my husband. Yeah. And it's, I'm, thank you so much for acknowledging me to start this. Cause like you and Mark are among the most inspiring people and then power couple that I've had the uh, pleasure to know and Aww. not just inspiring, but like, you guys are cool. Like you're fun to hang out with. You're funny. <laughs> like, uh, like it's always been, I was so excited when I was at Supra that I could bring um, you and your consulting firm on board to do apparel design for us because I know how much fun it is just to work with you guys. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite, you know, corporate experiences I've I've had. Um, and I think that there's just some people that you're on the same wavelength about things. Like I really, I didn't have to say all the words for yeah. for you for you guys to get it. Yeah, but you are also really trusting, which is like the best. Yeah, you're amazing to work with. Super organized, super clear about what you wanted, and then really trusting of us to do what, what we do. So. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I would love to go back from the beginning and talk about what it was like for you growing up in Portland. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up, people have a very clear um, idea of what Portland is, probably to Portlandia. And, <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of interesting, you know, just food and art and culture and design appreciation and everything going on there. I grew up more of an Oregon girl, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. It's really different when you get outside of the Portland city limits. Um, it's pretty rural. My family were, you know, working class. Um, my dad's side of the family were all loggers and um, military people and, um, kind of growing up with that. But my dad was, he's just like a really creative spirit. He was always kind of in PR and marketing. Um, and my mom, she, she worked in the film industry actually when she was um, really young in Seattle, independent film industry as a distributor. She was a dancer and a singer. Both my parents are performers. So I don't know. I just like, grew up in this crazy house, like very eclectic house in the mm -hmm. middle of five children. Um, and I, I don't know. I feel like I grew up, it was like the Partridge family in my house. Everyone <laughs> was like singing, um, played an instrument. And I just didn't have that gene. Like I was, I would kind of do it on my own behind closed walls, like be definitely a behind the scenes kind of person. Some private bedroom uh, dance parties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so besides having kind of like my own secret dreams of being on Star Search as a dancer, <laughs> like, 
um, I, from a pretty young age, got really into um, fashion. Like maybe it just was through magazines at the grocery store newsstand or something. You know, I was just really drawn to it. Um, my dad gave me his 35 millimeter Pentax camera when I was 11, I want to say. And I just started you know, making my friends dress up, doing photo shoots, doing hair and makeup. Um, and I think that that was kind of the segue into, you know, just being curious about this world and this industry and, mm-hmm. um, was really obsessed with models and, you know, I was, this was in the eighties and nineties. So it was just like the era of the supermodel and and TV house of style and like all those kind of shows. I feel like it was becoming something that people um, wanted to know more about and you could kind of get those insider views of things. So Mm -hmm. having that as a, as a personal interest and passion, as well as Um, my dad was just really good about keeping me in sports and exposing me to everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I was into gymnastics and ballet and after a lot of injuries, my dad was like, why don't we try softball? (laughs) And, um, uh, I ended up playing basketball and like that really clicked for me. So, Mm -hmm. So yeah, growing up through elementary school, middle school. So that was I was born and raised until I was 12 in Southern Oregon. It's very, um, it's almost like high desert kind of, uh, you know, climate and pretty small town vibes. We ended up moving to uh, the Portland area when I was in middle school. And then, um, you know, just really kept that interest going through basketball and Mm -hmm. and through fashion. Um, I think we've had very, like, part of the reason we're probably able to flow together so well now is, like, having similar backgrounds growing up. I mean, I feel like my time was equally split between getting obsessed with, like, what people were wearing and why and, like, loving things that were alternative viewpoints of that, like, Sassy Magazine was, like, the best thing that had ever happened when I was a kid. (laughs) And then equally, like, running to every sport that was possible to fill up my schedule. Yeah, yeah. And I think like growing up in that time, it was very clicky and, you know, you kind of had like your, your different crews and I somehow, I don't know, maybe it was also just being the middle mm-hmm. of the middle child of five, you kind of figure out how to carve out your own path. And, um, I just, I didn't feel too restricted by that, but yeah, I was definitely dressing like a crazy person in seventh grade trying to pull off runway looks that I would see in, you know, Vogue magazine or something. And amazing, um, but like pulling my dad's and I was a small, I was just like a late bloomer. I was a really small, like (laughs) trying to pull off like menswear looks that I saw on, I don't know, the Armani runway or something was was like actually legitimate. Um, oversized you know collared shirts and palazzo pants and people just thought I was nuts but I loved it I didn't care I can I can 100% visualize (laughs) you putting that outfit together Mm. (laughs) borrowing from the my brother's closets and yeah oh yeah I think there's something 
you know, really magical too about the middle school years between finding your own identity for the first time and like mixing it all up. Like if I think about what I wore the first day of school on like sixth grade versus the last, (laughs) like night and day, like I, there's a, my mother, so many people along the way, right? Oh yeah. And like, just if it was like such a growth period of like the first day of school outfit, my mother helped plan. And then like within like the next day I burned that outfit and never wore it again. It it made it like 24 hours before I was like, what am I doing? So you grow up in, um, in Oregon, you're, doing all this experimenting with um, fashion and your style. You're into sports. Um, you uh, went to finish high school in the same area too, outside of Portland? Yep. So we lived in um, in a neighborhood a mile down the road from Nike's campus. And um, I think towards the end of high school is when I really started to learn more about the different jobs that you could have in the fashion industry. And, and actually at the, up until my junior year, I either wanted to be a child psychologist, a photojournalist or a fashion designer. And I remember my dad, I was not the greatest student. I'll say that I was kind of like, if I was into the subject, I would get great grades. And if I didn't find the subject important, to me, I would do terribly and almost failed. So I was like an A or F student. Mm-hmm. And I think my dad, knowing that, that about me, was like, maybe you shouldn't go into a career where you need to stay in school for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, looking back at it, it could have been just like, I don't know if I can help you with tuition along with the five other children or four other children. But um, he at least yeah. spun it to be personal. It was really personal, but he really did say both my parents were really encouraging about um, going into a career that I would enjoy and that it would feel like you're not going to work every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they said, you know, if you want to help children someday, you can, you can always do that, but, you know, do the thing that's going to be fun and fulfilling Um, so I started looking into design schools. I went to, um, and again, just, I hated school so much. I just could not wait to get out of high school. And I Mm -hmm. think that I just assumed college would kind of be the same. Like if you don't find your way in high school, college is just going to be more of the same. So I looked at programs that I could just get in and out. Um, the art Institute in Seattle had an associate's degree in fashion design. So I was like, Oh, amazing. Two years. Um, I can do that. And then <laughs> I ended up doing it in a year and a half. Cause I just started early in the summer, went through the next summer, um, and doubled up on classes and everything. I just, I couldn't wait to get out of there, um, and start working. So I got super lucky, um, with, just through some family friends, I was, uh, had an opportunity to go work in Europe when I graduated from school. And I feel like that just set me off on like a whole new track. Um, I I think like there's so many, like how amazing for your parents to encourage you to really follow something that you were passionate about and that would make you happy. Yeah. And then how ahead of their time in that way, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, they, they're like that with 
with all five of us kids really just trusting and gave, gave us kind of the time and space and um, they, they weren't the parents to really push like traditional career paths. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, my, one of my younger brothers went to film school at USC and another brother has <laughs> taken his time. Um, but you know, sort of found his groove in like political science, but he's a drummer and he, you know, fights firefight. Uh, he's a firefighter. Um, do you have all brothers? I have three brothers and the oldest is my sister. Amazing. Yeah. Then, uh, so where, when you finished school and you landed in Europe, where, where did you end up? Um, so it was kind of a crazy story. We had some family friends in Spain who, um, had invited me to come stay with them. They said, you can come live with us. We have a friend who, they had a friend who ran a menswear um, company in Spain that did like suiting and things like that. And it was all designed and manufactured and everything um, about an hour outside of Madrid where they lived. And um, so they hooked me up with this internship. They said, don't worry about it. You just get here. Uh, we'll take care of all the details. <laughs> so um a week after my graduation, which I graduated early in um, December. So I don't know, first week of January or something, my mom and I flew to Europe and we kind of did like the whole train hopping thing um, through Italy just to spend some time and mm-hmm. see the site together for a couple of weeks. And when we landed in Spain, um, our friends, Jose and Mary Bell, they picked us up and um they just looked terrified and <laughs> they said that they had just gotten news that their friend's company filed for bankruptcy and was closing their doors. And I was just devastated. Oh, as no. Much, as I loved the idea of being in Europe and traveling around and seeing all these beautiful cities. And I had, you know, packed for three months worth of being there and working. And, um, they said, you know, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure something out. You can just stay with us and learn the language and we'll, we'll go travel around, um, and make sure you see Spain and stuff. But a few weeks into it, I just, I was getting really itchy and bored. Um, they didn't live in a big city or, you know, it was like, I was feeling a little, Um, but it was all, it all was just sort of meant to be. Um, my dad ended up coming out. Actually, I called, I also kind of just had like, they were great people and I loved the woman, Mary Bell, but, um, you know, we had, we had a little difference of opinion on how to communicate with one another. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, you know, the, the man that I was living with was, uh, he also grew up in a big family, but six brothers, just very male dominated kind of machismo mentality. And he crossed the line with me a couple of times and just made me feel uncomfortable. And I, um, I called my parents one night and I said, you guys need to call back tomorrow and tell them that I have a job offer back home and I need to come home. (laughs) like okay okay calm down so my dad um my dad flew out and we 
continued to do some traveling together. And um, he he actually got us hooked up on this trip um, to Israel mm-hmm. and Palestine. As a How part amazing. Of yeah, it was really amazing. He went and he heard he heard this man speak in Portland um, who was really promoting just um, peace and reconciliation in the Middle East between um, Palestinians and, and Israelis. And he, as part of his mission and his nonprofit organization, he organizes these trips every, you know, handful of years, people from all over the world congregate in, um, in Jerusalem. And for a week they go to all the different towns and villages and talk with people from kind of both sides of the, of the conflict and really just in the effort to like raise awareness and, um, and understanding. Right. So he wanted to go on that trip and I thought that sounded amazing. So I, I said like, let me do that too. And then, then we'll go back home together. Um, but in the middle of all of this travel, I met his, um, this family in Belgium near Antwerp, who my dad, my dad was a foreign exchange student when he was in high school and he mm-hmm. lived with them and he just kept in touch over the years. And it was just like this really incredible day where the, you know, basically his brothers um, said they were going to take my dad out and show him the old sites and grab a beer or whatever. And they said, you're going to hang out with our sister Gerarda. She, she makes dresses and things. We think you guys will, will get along. And no I way. really had this picture in my head, like a scene, maybe an alterations shop in the middle of some little village or something. Right, <laughs> right. She took me under her wing that day. You know, we went shopping in Antwerp. She took me to all these amazing, you know, designer boutiques and things I'd only seen in magazines. And um, really, she was just like this coolest woman. You know, she's my dad's age, but she just had amazing style kind of this avant-garde, like witchy, <laughs> like architectural, just she's so sophisticated and so chic. And um, we really got along and she took me shopping all day. And then at the end of the day, she took me to her studio, which was a converted farmhouse. Of and course it was. Yeah. It, and, you know, I'm, I'm still, I was 20 years old, so I wasn't that exposed I think to like how just freaking cool things can be in the world um yeah and yeah we walked into her shop she turns on the lights and it was just like floor to ceiling bolts of fabric all the machines you could ever dream of huge cutting tables a wall just full of sketches and what she did was basically um she operated a small team of sample makers for one of my favorite designers, Veronique Branchino. You know, here's this designer who I had on my inspiration boards in college who really influenced my um, style. And here's the woman who like makes all of her things for her um, with her sketches on the wall. And I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like one of those kind of hair on the back of your neck, standing up moments. And we had just really hit it off throughout that whole day. And she just looked at me and she's like, you know, I really could use some help around here. If you're, 
internship in Spain didn't work out, maybe you would want to stay here. <laughs> I was just like, what? So, um, so I did. I ended up staying with her for six months. I lived with her. I went to work with her every day. I mean, this is amazing. This is the coolest story I've ever heard. I got to meet and work very closely with Veronique in, in her studio. And um, she took me to Paris Fashion Week. And I was there for castings with the models and fittings and dressing people backstage. It was just like crazy, awesome experience. Well, and, and what and what I want all the you know listeners to get is that we've only gotten you to like twenty one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely changed. I think the trajectory for me in a way. Um, I and just to put a timestamp on this, uh, I actually was working in Veronique's studio a week or maybe it was like a week or two, just right before fashion week was coming up, just mad scrambling late nights and whatever. And, um, she came into the cutting room that I was in and she said, something very strange has just happened. You should come, come see on the news in my office. And, um, it was nine 11 and a plane had flown into the world trade center and, and no one knew what was going on yet. And it was just like this very, very strange, very surreal day. Um, I kind of continued working that day, not really understanding. I don't think anyone really knew yet what was going on. Um, but it was when I left at the end of the day and I was walking back to the train station that I stopped. A pub had their TVs on and I just like caught the news on through the window and I was just standing on the sidewalk watching, you know, the buildings in flames and what was people- it like? people jumping and, you know, oh, I was yeah. like, whoa, this is okay. This is like something else. And, um, yeah, I, I went to the train and I had missed my train. So I had an hour to wait and there was an internet cafe across the street and I went in there and it was just packed. Um, I kind of settled in and I checked my email and I had an email from my parents saying, you know, there's a travel warning out for Americans. Don't tell anyone that you're American. Just keep to yourself. Um, and then there are these girls, uh, these American girls were spread out. They were obviously traveling together and this really busy kind of big open room of computers. And they were being really obnoxious American travelers and like yelling at <laughs> each other from across the room. Like, oh my God. <laughs> our train's been canceled or, you know, our flight's been canceled. Like what's going on? And I finally got one of their attention. I said, Hey, so I don't know if you've seen the news yet, but there's something really serious. They think it's a terrorist attack. They're telling Americans to just kind of like keep a low profile if they're traveling abroad. And, um, I got talking to them and they actually were, they went to school in Oregon as well. They're from Oregon and we had friends in common and it was just, really bizarre. (laughs) Um, but it was good, I guess, just to connect and talk, talk with someone. Um, cause it was kind of like a long ride back to the house. And I think, uh, the woman, you know, Gerardo, who I worked with was, um, asleep by the time I got home, I just hadn't really talked to anyone about what was going on, you know, until. For sure. 
And, and, mm -hmm. and to be an American abroad when such a big cultural thing is happening, and especially mm -hmm. from your perspective, like you're living this dream life that you didn't even think was probably possible to have it be like this magical and all this kismet stuff happening. And then mm -hmm. to have that be a note in that story, mm -hmm. it's it must have been such a weird mix of feelings and emotions and like a, I don't know, did you feel disconnected from the U.S. at that time? Like, did how did it land for you being abroad in, in that time and place? Um, it, it was very surreal. And I think because I'd had such a intense um, few months leading up to that, like having been in uh Israel and Palestine just um months before that mm -hmm. I I also had a very broadened understanding of kind of like what the perception of the U.S. was in the world at the time you know George W. Bush was president and even just traveling around I got just accosted by people like how could you Americans vote for George at the time. It's like, well, I didn't vote for him. But, um, you know, you you find yourself making uh, excuses or apologizing for the perception of Americans, even if that's not how you associate yourself or or, or represent yourself abroad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think having had that experience and then just sort of seeing like, okay, well, you know, there are other places in the world that the U S has a very heavy hand in their daily conflict. And, um, this is the first time that we're experiencing it on our soil. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just felt like, uh, I had a fairly neutral view in a weird way about, about it. Um, and I think just being surrounded also by, political you know they're very politically aware but it's like belgium and the netherlands and holland you know they were like this very um kind of neutral political territory mm -hmm. um, so i think that it kept my hysteria level a little bit down but i definitely was um it changed even just our industry was changing a lot because of that i mean there were designers sure. wrapped their entire collections um, who didn't show at all, who changed everything and basically the 11th hour because it, you know, all of a sudden it felt inappropriate to be kind of celebratory yep. or, or positive. Like things, the mood just turned very somber very quickly. So interestingly, I was working with the Belgian designers and their, their style is a little bit on the somber kind of serious side anyway, but I was also working with a, a Brazilian designer at the time who was kind of part of this group that I was um, working for and his collection was very Brazilian, just like beautiful, bright colors and embroidery and chiffon. And um, it was interesting because uh, the day before his show in Paris, I was like working, you know, on alterations and stuff from fittings and Isabella Blow had come through. Um, she was obviously alive at the time and she mm -hmm. was an editor and she was making the rounds at all the showrooms and she came in like this whirlwind for, I don't know, eight minutes or something. Yeah. <laughs> she came in, looked at everything when her, and she was wearing her crazy hat and like totally dressed to the nines and 
she loved the collection and she said, this is what the world needs right now, you know, positivity and um, a little romance. And, you know, she was really kind of congratulatory of of his collection, but really when it showed, it was just like completely inappropriate (laughs) in the world. And that might've been his last show. I, I mean, it really changed things. Yeah, I mean, uh, I even remember being, I was a junior in college when that happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking, I was really impacted by the fact that a bunch of the people on the plane from Boston were buyers for TJX. Oh, wow. That were going to LA for, to see a bunch of accounts and to see a bunch of brands. And yeah. I I remember thinking like, oh man, like, I think, you know, having similar dreams as you of like, it'd be so magical to travel the world and work abroad and, you know, spend your days like making and shopping for clothes and being in that whole world. And I remember having a moment of, is it too scary to do those things now? Mm. Where I Mm -hmm. like prior to that, I wouldn't have thought about it, but then I was like, oh man. And, And honestly, like that fear of like how much travel we have to do in this industry like it mm-hmm. stuck with me for, you know, the whole time. Like, I mean, it's still with me, but it, it was when I was at yeah. Puma and traveling every week to a different country for a, a phase, it was really present yeah. of like, I am on an airplane so much. And yeah, it, it, would, it would come back to me once in a while of like the risk versus reward potential for, yeah. I mean, honestly, any yeah. industry that's there. In but perspective, right? Yeah. Like what, like, is it worth it? <laughs> At the end of the day, we're talking about cotton. Right. And thread. Like, what do I need to put on the line for that? But, mm-hmm. uh, but then the dust settles, right? And you, is, uh, I guess for me, it'd be one thing if I, if I didn't feel passionately or fueled by my line of work um, and I wasn't excited about it. And I love travel yeah. in general. And I guess that was, that was something interesting. I mean, I ended up, I ended up going home soon after that. And I do feel like I came back to just a completely different country. Yep. Um, and I don't know if that change was as stark for people who were here, here when it happened and just sort of like lived through the, the quick succession of, um, changes. But, you know, I remember coming home and just right away in the airport, there were American flags everywhere. Mm-hmm. And everyone had, one a bumper sticker on their car of the American flag. And I just like, that was never a thing before leaving. I don't remember ever seeing that. Um, so this sort of nationalism and like pride and it's obviously what, what the country needed at the time, but it was just really interesting. The kind of before and after, mm-hmm. I guess, of, of coming back, back and, um, but yeah, I mean, I had some girlfriends who had, they had come to see me when I was in Europe and they were stopping in New York on their way back. They were staying just outside the city on the morning of nine 11. They were getting ready. They had, um, these were design school friends of mine. Mm-hmm. They had their portfolios in tow and they were getting all dressed up and they were going to just go hit like door to door style spread their resume and their portfolios around and see if they could get some jobs lined up, just like entry-level fashion jobs. And um, I remember trying to get a hold of them first because I knew that they were in New York. 
And uh, so obviously they didn't go out on the train that morning and Mm -hmm. they didn't go. And, you know, basically people were getting like no one was hiring after that happened too. the whole industry just sort of like froze because no one was sure what was going on in general was really unstable for a while. Um, so it was kind of a scary time. I, I do feel like I had all this momentum and I felt so proud in what I was doing. And I put myself like way out of my comfort zone, but I knew it was special and I knew it was important. And then to come back to the U S and kind of co- going back to Portland too, Beaverton, I was like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> now yeah. You know, I, um, did feel a little lost in that. Um, but I got a job at Janssen swimwear, which was a hundred year old, um, heritage brand yep. based in Portland. Uh, they had just been acquired by Perry Ellis and, um, were really going through a transition of kind of being a commodity brand to wanting to resurrect it to be this, you know, glamorous swimwear brand that it had been in its past. And, um, so that was really cool. I got hired as an assistant designer, um, put on that project, the Diving Girl Collection, the designer I, I worked with was, um, you know, our job was basically to like dig through these amazing archives from the 30s and 40s and 50s and um, pull together collections of kind of like what the most modern, glamorous woman would mm-hmm. want to swimmer today and um really helped you know worked worked really closely I, I guess for a, a fairly conservative long-standing brand I got to work on the most kind of fun um image driving collection for the brand and working really closely with marketing to um pull together kits to send to um the highest tier retailers and things like that just to kind of get Jansen back on the radar. Um, and, you know, I think that, that I got put on that project and on that team because of my experience abroad. Mm-hmm. So I was able to really figure out how to work within the confines of what the Portland market had to offer, which wasn't really fashion at the time. Um, but I guess just stand out against other people applying for those jobs um, with that experience and having traveled and all of that. Yeah. How, how did you go from there to Boston? Um, well, so first I had um, a pretty major life uh, change when I was at Janssen. Um, my older sister had, um, had a son that uh, she wasn't able to care for. And so I started, um, you know, obviously with a lot of support from friends and family and lots and lots of research and conversations kind of figured out how to become, um, his, his guardian. And, um, it took some time, but, oh gosh, what year was this? 2003, he was born. So 2004, I was 23. Um, I was finally granted legal, um, guardianship of, of my, my now adopted son, Mikhail, mm-hmm. um, who's awesome. 15. Oh my God. He's going to be 16 next month. Um, but 
what I, in that process, I was like, okay, I'm making $18,000 a year. I work until 10 PM every night. Like there's no growth um, opportunity at this company. It was, you know, the way it was set up was like lead designers that were very senior and had been there forever. And then they had assistants and there was just no like stepping stones, you know, to get, Mm -hmm. um, to climb that ladder. So um, I kind of, knew that wasn't going to work. Um, it was very strange for the first time I was like looking at the classifieds for just jobs, like just any job that would pay me more money. And I was realizing really quickly that I was going to just be like, I could have been a miserable person. Um, (laughs) um, and like that wasn't going to work. And so I, um, heard that Nike was posting a new position for a designer. And, um, I, I didn't think I wanted that job until I kind of started going for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Really it was more out of necessity. I knew I needed, I knew I needed a better job with better pay and better benefits. And I had someone else to take care of more than just myself. And so, um, applying for it was a task. I, um, you know, did like the automatic, automatic, um, online process, got the auto rejection within seconds. Like, yeah, thank you. But thank you. And I was like, what did I answer wrong? Like I must've hit something. And someone told me, you have to lie. You just have to say, you know, like there was a bachelor's degree, um, requirement actually. And so I honestly answered no. And they, you know, they get thousands and thousands of applications for every design job that gets posted apparently. So, um, they need to weed them out somehow. Right. Um, so I went back in and I reapplied and I said, yes. I'm like, I can explain that one later in person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not trying to like be a liar. I just, um, and then I didn't hear anything. And I ended up just getting my resume into every person who I knew who knew someone mm-hmm. at Nike. And I said, please, can you get this to the hiring director? And it wasn't until I think my resume, she told me later, my resume showed up on her desk three or four times. And she finally called the recruiter and said, all right, I don't know who this girl is, but can you just get her in here for an interview? <laughs> um, and the recruiter was the scariest woman, but I'm now, um, I've kept in touch with her all these years, but at the time being 23, she just terrified me. Um, she was from New York and she just had that very like fast down and dirty, like tell it how it is, mm-hmm. um, uh, demeanor and mentality. And she just ripped me a new one when I sent her my portfolio without my resume inside. And, you know, <laughs> But really, she's just grooming me for what was going to be a very um, challenging interview process. But um, yeah, the interview went amazingly. I just really hit it off with the director and the other designers and the the cross-functional team. Um, And yeah, like overnight, you know, doubled my salary and had really great benefits and kind of got dropped into the the deep end. but on a really amazing team was super supported. It was all women. My director was a woman. Her boss was a woman. The VP of apparel was a woman. 
Um, my senior designer was a woman. I just, I was like surrounded by these really strong, supportive, ambitious, but not catty um, women. And I felt really safe and protected there. And I felt like I got my master's in business by working with all these really talented people. How amazing. Yeah. And so that was around the same time that I met Mark McGarry. Um, And we ended up in Boston because he, I mean, I worked at Nike for two years, I think. And then he got a job offer with Puma Mm -hmm. and moved cross country. And we did the long distance thing as long as we could. And then um, I got a call from a recruiter. Another, just one of those serendipitous things, like I wasn't ready to leave Nike because I loved my job and I was learning and growing a lot, but um, it was definitely getting to the point in our relationship where we were going to just have to make a call one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had been avoiding that kind of hard conversation for, I don't know, it was like eight or nine months. And finally we just said, look, if the right opportunity comes along, let's just pursue it and we'll see what happens. I, got a phone call the next day from a recruiter. <laughs> you might be looking for a job in Boston. I was like, what the hell, man? Like, <laughs> the universe was listening. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, Reebok had just been acquired by Adidas. Um, a bunch of people had left. They were reshifting teams. They were rebuilding categories. Um, and I was going to be in Boston just for like a long weekend to visit with Mark. And uh, they said, why don't you come in just for, just for a chat? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have my portfolio. I brought a sketchbook and it was like so last minute, but we just, again, just like really hit it off. And uh, they called me back later that day and offered me the job. So that happened really fast. <laughs> I packed up little Mikhail and um, on his third birthday we moved to Boston amazing I love that your story just keeps getting better as well (laughs) (laughs) but what I one of the things I would love to go back to because I think it really speaks to who you are as a powerful lady and then also the relationship that you have with Mark is Mm -hmm. like how you became a mom the first time and you're what were you you were 24 23 yeah Yeah, you're 23 working in fashion you just got off of this, you know, amazing European experience. Mm-hmm. You're just figuring out who you are and what your life's going to be. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you get to the point where you're like, no, like I'm meant to be, I'm meant to be his mom when yeah. I'm sure there were so many other options that you guys thought of as a family and like knowing what rock stars your parents are as well. Like how, how did it end up being like, no, like that's my path. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I think I was definitely not planning on becoming, it wasn't like I was thinking and dreaming about motherhood, you know, at that stage of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully had the opportunity to go uh, when Michaela was born, Um, flew to Georgia when I heard that my sister was in labor and was able to, um, with my mom, we went and spent time with him as a baby. And, um, I basically held him for, I think three days in this rocking chair in the hospital, in a hospital room. And, um, just felt very strangely maternal for him or just, I don't, I don't know what it was. I 
you know, we knew he wasn't going to be going home with, um, with my sister and, um, or a biological parent and he was going to be in foster care and there was like nothing we could do about the legal situation of it. But, um, we, uh, I don't know. It, it, there was a long, you know, kind of ride, uh, in terms of, of who, who was going to care for him and, and when, um, but when it was, determined that he was going to be basically, um, available for adoption and, and they contacted us as the family, obviously I was Mm -hmm. like, well, no, like he has to be with us. Like he has to be with family, of course. Um, and my mom had just been diagnosed with cancer, uh, and she was battling that and going through treatment and everything. I mean, she just, she was, she's a grandma. She wasn't, trying to be the mother of a, 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 she wasn't in the position really, but we decided that as a team, we could do it. Um, Cause I also was like, I don't make any money and I don't know anything about children. And it was really scary, but I just knew, I, I knew, it would, I knew we, I knew I could do good enough. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and and yeah, so when he, we finally got the green light, I mean, it's crazy how slowly things move, um, in the system, but, um, he was 17 months old and I got finally noticed that he was, um, ready to come to Oregon and, and live with me. And I took, you know, I had to get certified as a foster parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to do it with my mom because legally I couldn't legally, I was too young to be certified as a foster parent and they, as like a single woman, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but with my mom and I, we basically, um, it was, it was, I don't know. It was fun. We were going to these like fostering, um, one-on-one kind of courses and how to have background checks and all of that stuff, you know, but we, um, we just knew that together we could do it. I broke up with my just dumb boyfriend that I was living with at the time. <laughs> um, I'm ditching you for a two-year-old. Bye. Yeah. I was like, so this is happening and you are not going to be a part of it. And he's like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, you're not the one. And I just, I've got to like get, I don't know. I just was really excited about um the job I don't know like being I had the energy for it too man I was just like mm-hmm. young and um fearless in a way so no I mean we, we just did it I don't know I don't know I just remember saying having this conversation with my family like people do so much more with so much less yeah. what what is the excuse not to um with, with all the scary, like the unknowns, just, mm-hmm. the unknowns. it's just like, this just feels like the right thing to do and it's going to be okay. And, um, and it was, I mean, he was just this angel child, so special, so sweet, so easy, um, and fun. It, you just, yeah, we just kind of had like our own little love affair, but we credit Mikhail for bringing Mark and I together because Mark and I knew each other, knew of each other. I had never spoken a word to each other 
until the night before, um, before Mikhail was coming to Oregon. <laughs> we were, I was like out with friends, just kind of like a final, I don't know, like fun night out and your motherhood bachelor party. Yeah, basically. Um, and yeah, we just kind of like for the first time ever found ourselves in close proximity and had this talk and kind of, I don't know, had this really strange moment of awkward eye contact (laughs) um, where you're kind of like, wait, was he looking at me? Like, is she looking at me like that? (laughs) Um, but yeah, the next morning I got on a plane, I went to Georgia. I spent um, a few days with Mikhail and the foster family to really understand, you know, just get, get my instructions, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. How do I do this? And then we came back together. And uh, when I returned to work, like a week or two later, I had an email in my inbox from Mark McGarry. And he just was like, I heard what you have going on. And I think that's really cool. And you might need a friend. So let me know if I can ever like help you out or give you a break or whatever. Um, Talk about the smoothest pickup line ever. I know, right? And I was just so over it. Like I just pictured myself being, I don't know. I just had this vision. I was going to be like super mom, single mom in it, like not, no, no compromises, you know, going to raise this like little Renaissance man. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but yeah, Mark kind of started courting me bizarrely, like what 26 year old dude wants to be a part of that. But what I learned really quickly about Mark is that he really values family. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, it's sweet. He, he, he said that he's like, I told someone either she's a saint or she's a psycho, but we'll find out you know, <laughs> like, something really wrong with her or, um, or she's just awesome or whatever. That's amazing. Um, not too my own you kind of have that awareness (laughs) well what I think I mean I think too to give you credit for you know being brave to do that but just what you've done with Mikhail like what before I'd ever uh, met him I heard Mm -hmm. all these stories from the guys at Puma of like their moment with Mikhail like (laughs) when they would go over for dinner and they'd be like no he's the smartest human I've ever met like he's way smarter than we are (laughs) and like they all at their desk would have little things that he had made for them like I remember our friend CT telling the story about going over to dinner and Mikhail presenting everybody with these rocks and that each one had a meaning behind it. And it was like perfect for that person. And they're like, we don't know what he is, but he, he knows things that we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He's like that since he was born. He just has this like really cool energy you know, just like he's got that wisdom mm-hmm. um, and he's very intuitive. And when he was little, yeah, he was just so thoughtful and um, deep, <laughs> you know? He, he occurred to me as a like old man hippie that was reborn into a child based on how people had described him. Like I've seen things. Right. Like he's yeah. been to Woodstock. He just doesn't remember right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he still is. He's just like he's almost as tall as Mark now. Like they wear the same clothes. That's crazy. Big, deep, booming voice. Um, 
And, you know, he'll still like blow a kiss into the phone every time we talk on the phone, even if he's mad at me. He goes, bye. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Good job, mom. And I'm like, I love that you still do that because I was just being so mean to you. (laughs) So strict or whatever, you know. um, But yeah, he's a cool kid. Well, and I think I think a great segue is that you are now a mom of two, mm-hmm. and um, you, while being a mother of two, you made the decision to leave a, a corporate job mm-hmm. that had great daycare and <laughs> great benefits to go and start your own consulting, like you know, creative firm. Yeah. How did you and Mark get to a place where that made any sense with how busy you guys were <laughs> both working for huge international, you know, sportswear yeah. companies with two kids, with a mortgage, like you name it and you guys were dealing with it. So what was that yeah. conversation like? And was there a lot of alcohol involved to be like, yes, let's do this? <laughs> um, I think it was a little bit happening in baby steps, um, which helped, but then there were some catalyst of course along the way that just sometimes you just have to like leap right and you Mm -hmm. figure out how to fly while you're falling um we I was at Reebok and we knew we wanted to actually Mikhail was genuinely putting the pressure on for me to have a baby (laughs) really wanted to have a sister um but a sibling and um and you know it's kind of like all right there's it's never feels like the right time because everything's always crazy and busy and you could always be making more money or you could always have more in your savings account or whatever. But Mm -hmm. um, it felt like the right time for us. And I was really struggling at Reebok with the lack of my work-life balance. Um, Mark and I were both tasked with traveling a lot for work. Uh, We had really great support with, um, in terms of like backup um, nanny and babysitter type thing for Mikhail, but it really felt like we were just two ships passing in the night sometimes and just like passing the baton off. Um, but single parenting for like week or two, two week stretches, um, back and forth. And it was sort of taking its toll. So I just, I knew that if I was going to have, um, if we were going to have a, if we're going to grow our family, then I needed a different work environment. Um, I started interviewing and got a job. This is another one of those things that happened. A recruiter called me. Um, And I was like, like on my cell phone at my desk at Reebok, she's like, hey, um, New Balance is growing their apparel team. And someone said that you might be interested in uh, like looking around or picking your head up or something. I'm like, what is going on? I just had this conversation you know, this week or something. So after asking around, I had heard that New Balance for um, that work-life balance and, you know, their family owned and independently run and um, that the vibe was just a bit different there. And I thought, okay, this might be a good opportunity to both be a part of a new category that's growing as well as, um, you know, have a, a better balance and eliminate my commute and all of those things. So, um, interviewed for the job, got the job and gave my notice at Reebok. And then they told me that they were going to enforce my non-compete. 
for six months. We, I was like, okay, we all knew that that might happen, but for people who don't know, right, your your non-compete basically is that you cannot work for a competitor for a given amount of time. But (laughs) a week later, I took a pregnancy test and found out I was pregnant, which... (laughs) was not the plan. We thought we were going to have a baby like, you know, after I started a new job and got settled and stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is getting interesting. So um, that six month period of me being out and my belly just growing and my whole lifestyle completely changing, like Mm -hmm. Mark's Mark was working and the capacity he was working. But for the first time ever, I was available more with Mikhail. Like I was taking him to school every day and picking him up from school. He wasn't in an after school program for the first time. I was like volunteering in his classroom on art projects and reading with kids. And, um, I was cooking food for the first time, <laughs> <laughs> I was, like cooking up recipes and making stuff. And I was totally in nesting mode and working on house projects. I was like, I could get used to this. Um, and after doing my research on like what the daycare situation was going to be for an infant and how expensive it was in Boston, I just, I don't know. It was like the more time I spent not working, the more I could see myself working differently. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom was a working mother. She was the breadwinner in our family. Um, I never, ever pictured myself as not being that. Um, but again, I think it's just when you ha- when you create that space um, for yourself and you have that time, it's like the, the, the windows just kind of open up, you know, like you can see an alternative way of doing things like, Oh, I don't have to grind so hard every single day and be frantic and spend two hours at home with my family, um, in a given day. So, so yeah, it was kind of a baby step. And then, um, when my non-compete ended, I was eight and a half months pregnant and I started going into work at New Balance. Your boss is like, what did we do? (laughs) I mean, I had been transparent with them along the way. Like as soon as we knew the three month mark that it's like a healthy pregnancy, I told them, but I said, don't worry about it. Like I'm coming to work for you. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem. Um, But unfortunately it was like, I just, I kind of got in there and I started consulting with them, like freelancing basically, because I, um, wasn't going to have a maternity leave based on the timing. So I don't know. It just, it, I realized that, um, I, I have one of those few types of jobs that I could actually just be busy as a freelancer, um, a freelance designer and why not give it a try? Like we had just really gotten a taste of what a less chaotic life could be like. So Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up telling, um, the woman who hired me that I wasn't going to be able to accept the job. And I was so sorry that they waited for six months and, um, she just like, she totally got it. She said, I'm so happy. Now we can just be friends and I don't have to be your boss. And (laughs) um, I'm actually going to, we're going out to go. She lives out in, um, 
in Encinitas now. So we're going to go visit them next, uh, next month, but we've stayed in really good touch. He's become a mentor for me as far as, you know, career growth and working moms goes. She was really supportive and it made me realize that, um, that I, I could do this. And she actually hired me to freelance for them for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, Tom at Puma heard that I, that Mark's wife's a freelance designer and she's available. So he called me in and I just, I started getting these little projects here and there. And it's like, before I knew it, I was making as much money or more money than I had been making as a full-time salaried employee and without all the strings attached and, you know, <laughs> basically just doing it between nap times and midnight feedings, but um, just kind of got the taste. Like we, we could do this and figure this out. Um, the freelance business just grew. I mean, it just grew to the point where I couldn't do everything my on my own. And I started tapping friends of mine who, who had also left the corporate world and were free freelancing and I was I was having Mark meet over coffee or lunch with clients to talk to them about their brand strategy because you know you can only do so much with design of the brand um strategy and marketing concepts and stuff aren't aren't there it's not gonna be successful so when he started doing that I think we realized like there's a need here and Mm -hmm. there's all these new brands launching, um, many of them from people like our former colleagues who are kind of hitting their ceiling at these corporate companies and realizing they could do something better or different. And, um, we just ended up, well, I'll say in the beginning, I just, I ended up becoming this kind of go-to resource for that, um, for the creative side. And then I, I don't know, we just, Mark had been at Puma for eight years and was kind of getting a little itchy there as well. And I think for him to stay there and keep growing in his career, we were going to have to relocate to another country like Germany or the UK. And we didn't want to bounce around anymore. We really wanted to get rooted. So it was scary, but we did it. We just, (laughs) you know, but, but I had built up a business that, um, could have sustained, us living very humbly, but could have sustained us. So it was a little less scary. And you'd always been really smart about saving and, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that nest, that little nest egg for that cushion, I should say. Yeah. Your, um, your emergency so fund. Yeah, yeah. Mortgage, two kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then suddenly like no benefits and, um, you know, doing it ourselves was scary, but doable. And I think the more you have to do it, the more you will do it. So we just made the leap, you know. No, I think it's been so interesting throughout our careers in the industry as well to look at how much it's changed and both from like what brands exist and which ones don't, which retail stores do and which ones don't. And then seeing how many people have never felt like they've been able to be fully creatively expressed in these very creative jobs. So to me, it's been fascinating seeing our our peers and colleagues start companies, whether they were in the industry or not. And like, I really like thankful to the strong corporate places we came from, like feeling empowered that Mm -hmm. we knew enough of how to run a business that we could do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that at the bigger companies, 
you you learn so much, but you also see where there's so much, um, there's just too many layers. Mm-hmm. And so if you can kind of take all that industry knowledge and know-how and you, you know all the parts that need to be to be there, to be successful, but you can just trim out all the fat and you can move really quickly and you don't need, I mean, the biggest hurdles at these big companies is internally convincing people that it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. like the right design or the right um, consumer, the right concept. So you spend so much time and money and resources just convincing your internal colleagues. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's like most of those conversations don't matter that much. You just need to, uh, I don't know, put, put good work out there and like do it quickly and then listen mm-hmm. and what's resonating and then evolve really quickly. And um, so it's exciting. And I, I've loved being part of these startups. You, you learn a whole new skill set as well. I mean, I've learned a lot from some of my clients who started their companies fresh out of college and on the flip side, were just so naive and inexperienced that it served them well as also, you know what I mean? Yeah. They didn't know what they didn't know. And, um, sometimes the larger, the people coming from the larger brands with, you know, 20, 30 years of experience, they're too cautious. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, they'll slip into their corporate ways just with no reason other than that's what they know, <laughs> they know you know. I, I mean, uh, I feel like I'm caught right in the middle of those two places myself right now because having like my MBA is in entrepreneurship and I've done things before I was ever in the corporate world, but having gone through it and to a point of like leading groups through it, like every day I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't know that. Okay, we're going to pretend we don't know that right now and just do the lemonade stand version. It'll be fine. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because it usually, it usually is fine, you know, and I think that the most important thing and the coolest thing is working with these smaller brands and, um, and also just this direct to consumer kind of channel, um, just having the direct dialogue with your customers, the people buying your product, um, the people liking your Instagram posts or your advertising, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you just, you get to actually speak to them very directly if you want to, um, and it, learn from that. And it's, it's really cool. Well, I think it's so cool for them as well, because they actually become part of the company in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you, if you have that line of communication and it's honest and it's pure, then people will forgive your, um, short coming <laughs> when it comes to like or like how you the box that you shipped your product in I mean they're just they they do they feel part of the growth and part of the story so mm-hmm. it's cool amazing so currently you're in the process of putting McGarry and Sons the uh, design firm mm-hmm. that you have on pause yeah. because you're going to be joining Mark full-time Yes. At York. And maybe it happened as of January 1st. Yeah, Amazing. So let's tell the audience about York and what it's going to look like with you guys now working together. Yeah. So uh, York Athletics Manufacturing is a footwear brand that we started with um, 
our co-founders, the York brothers, um, three years ago. And we make a very versatile performance sneaker that works amazingly in the gym and as, as well as just looking, um, great on the street. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about being a brand that we sell shoes, but we really are inspired by just putting out great content that's going to connect people, inspire people, um, really embracing the importance of mental and physical well-being in the world. And, um, you know, we know shoes, so we can make a great sneaker that kind of is a vehicle to, to promote that message. Um, so that's what we're doing. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we worked with the York brothers as a consulting group three, four years ago and launched the brand. And then they, they asked Mark to join them as a co-founder and the CEO. Uh, so he stopped consulting with the brand and, uh, with McGarry and Sons. And so I've been running it the last handful of years by myself with my team. Um, while kind of moonlighting as the creative director for York, but never fully being uh, available for them. And so we just sort of had this epiphany this year. Like, I love working with all of our clients and all the projects we've done. But at the end of the day, I'm so passionate about York and the potential for York and I'm really excited to kind of remove myself from a lot of the administrative side of running a business that I was mm-hmm. um, really caught up in and just like pouring myself back into being creative. And, and you know, my responsibility for the brand is really like how we show up in the world. It's on me. I need to make it super tight and cohesive, um, really clear what our message is and, you know, every, every touch point that we have, people should totally get it. Like, ah, these guys make a great sneaker and they're here for my mental and physical well-being. Like, cool. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing message. And I, I really love to see what York's done so far about embracing, you know, different athletes than what you would see at, at the big guys. Right, like mm-hmm. I, it's always had um, a rebellious, edgy approach to it, and people who are, you know, like people who are are taking part in athletics and fitness for themselves over anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things we've done symbolically that we hope help people understand what what we're all about. So like the shoe is very, very minimally branded. For example, we always, after working for all the big guys and having to place a giant swoosh or three stripes or vector or you You name it, whatever, right? Like, um, so the branding would dictate what the product was. And we just wanted to make a great product that was just seamlessly, um, could slip into someone's life and wasn't a billboard. Um, so product ethos wise, it's always been about minimalism and functionality and, um, continually perfecting the details. We really just have one model that we continually evolve. Every time it goes into production, I literally look at it with our sourcing team, like, 
what else can we take away? What mm-hmm. else can we strip down? What, how else can we make this? Um, like what, what doesn't need to be there and kind of always evolving that, which is a fun challenge. And then, um, and then, yeah, with, with the branding, with, with really the brand experience, I think we all kind of grew up in alternative culture and, you know, Mark was a skateboarder and, and snowboarder and surfer and, um, related much less to traditional sports. And, um, I think for myself growing up passionately interested in fashion and design and then kind of going to sportswear brands where you, you couldn't fully explore that, um, you know, that sort of design sensibility. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really excited to, the brand is, is a little bit more for people on the, the fringe, you know, we kind of talk about like creating a community of lone wolves in a way. Yep. Um, people have really just confidently carved out a path in their, for their, for themselves um, and swim against the current and all of that. I mean, we just really want to embrace it and let people know that um, there's a place for great content and great products. Well, and I think it also speaks to who you guys are individually and as a couple as well, right? Like yeah. it's, it's a lot of part of what inspires me about you guys besides the amazing relationship that you have together and as a family, but that you, you do keep choosing what makes sense for your life versus yeah. what would make sense if the rest of the world was telling you what path to take, right? So yeah. I, ju- I think like being able to embrace that spirit and give a little bit to everybody else is must be really empowering as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about turning this into my dream job, you know, it's like <laughs> on me to do it and for Mark as well. And I think for our whole team, it's like, how can we make this the best? Um, it's in our control. It's in our hands. And definitely comes with its challenges. I mean, you have financial goals and targets that you're very aware of when you're a small company. You just, you see every dollar and cent that goes Mm -hmm. in and out. Um, And so just being mindful and responsible in that regard, but also just like having fun with it and challenging the way things are and, and why are they that way? I mean, one of my favorite things about the brand is being a unisex brand like a yeah. unisex company we don't talk differently about men and women uh we don't make products differently for men and women we're actually huge well maybe by the time this is airing <laughs> finalized but we're you know revamping the website so that that's really clear um that there's it's just ridiculous to make some of those definitions anymore so yeah we're we're really embracing that um we are launching a collaboration with a really inspiring, amazing person who um, that campaign will be out in April. Amazing. Listeners in particular will be really inspired by, by it. Um, you know, just people who are fighters, people who aren't afraid to, you know, go toe to toe against their own demons or, or the adversities in their life, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's really like the York mindset and the, the people who we look to, um, be the megaphone for that, um, this coming year, it, it, it's going to be really exciting. 
That's amazing. So speaking of inspiring others, when, you know, who are the people in your life that have been, you know, the critical people for inspiring you to, to make for all the choices that you've made? Um, I mean, my family, so much of it comes back to my family. My, my parents in particular have just always been so supportive. Um, of me and encouraging me to really listen to my own, just my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think definitely Mikhail becoming a, a mother at a young age and just having that responsibility um, to make, I don't know, wise decisions for our family, but also to show him that following your passions and the things that fuel you and make you feel good is, is super important. I, you know, I don't want my kids to see that, um, it, the, you should just settle for anything because the world tells you, you need a certain amount on your paycheck or mm-hmm. uh, a certain house or, you know, <laughs> whatever, like, um, that's been super inspiring. And then, you know, even, coming back to my parents, my mom is dealing now with her fifth, um, diagnosis of breast cancer. And, um, she is just a spitfire. Like every time I talk to her, she's so positive and she'll always hold on to that. The 1% of hope (laughs) in a sentence, you know, like she does not listen to the statistics that, um, or even the diagnosis really being handed to her, she'll just hold on to um, the best possible what ifs and that real, she believes in the power of positivity and prayer. And um, I've really just been embracing that the older I get, especially. Um, Yeah. And then, I mean, I've just been so fortunate. I think this past year, one of the coolest things I had the opportunity to do, I was invited to be on a panel that Bodega put on. Um, and, and Bodega, um, for people who don't know, is the sneaker boutique in Boston. That's like one mm-hmm. of the top places in the whole world to uh, find styles, find sneakers. Like it's always the top of the top of the sneaker culture world. Right. I mean, they've just, they they've done such a good job creating their own little thing and so unassuming being from Boston, but they've actually just opened up a huge store in downtown LA that's doing really well mm-hmm. as well. But they put on this event called Her by Bodega. And really it was the brainchild of two young women who work for the company and just felt like there are some really amazing kick-ass women that don't really get the platform because it is a very male-dominated kind of uh, industry in terms of the owners of the brands, um, the top people in marketing, you know, and all of that. And I think there are a lot of, um, equally inspiring and accomplished women that they wanted to really start, uh, to put the spotlight on. So mm-hmm. they did this panel talk. It was in the store one night, just completely packed standing room only. Um, men and women, all ages, all backgrounds. It was just like the most beautiful room in Boston that I've ever been in. 
in terms of the people. And um, we got to share our stories. There was a, a lot of you know Q&A with the audience. And um, coming from, coming out of that, these t- and, and Sarah they brought together this like really cool group of women and where you get dinner together now and we get drinks and we're all in this group text and sending each other just awesome positive messages throughout the day. And it, it just reminded me to like pick my head up. I love my family. I love my work, but I need to be in, in the community more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of them asked me to be her mentor and I just was like, okay, I'm there. I'm at that stage in my life. Now. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's an amazing thing. Um, my old director from, from, Nike, um, Karen Francisco, she's one of the most inspiring women that I've ever worked for. She's the best boss I ever had. And, um, you know, she's still a mentor of mine. She's a person that I call every couple of years when I'm at some kind of crossroads or trajectory with my career, like, what do I, am I making the right decision? So I think, um, I'm excited to make myself available for, for that next phase as well and inspire people um, to carve out their, their path, you know, and, and make bold moves and those leaps of faith. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent why I'm taking this path with the powerful ladies as well, because I think just like the group at you, you met through bodega, there's something so powerful in having a group that is really just there for like being your best. And, you know, there is so much power in moving from the, like the participant to the coach phase of mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, it's j- such an honor, right. For you to be asked to be on the panel and then to be asked to be a mentor and then realize like how much you have to give, like, mm-hmm you're, you're still so young and you've done so much with your life across like many of the different areas that people have goals in their life. And like, I'm so excited for you and Mark to be a, a team again on this project and putting all your energy together in one place. Cause mm-hmm. already what's happening at York is amazing. And I know like all of our other friends that have helped helping you guys do it that are just also rock stars. And yeah, yeah. To, to me, it's just such a magical place for you guys to be as individuals and as a, as a family going forward. Mm, that's cool. I can't wait to see what powerful ladies turns into because it's already had and with, you know, with your, I don't even know where you find the time, <laughs> like, how crazy busy and like gnarly your jobs have been. And you're like, I'm going to start this thing. Like, well, okay, if Kara has time to do this, like I have zero excuses. So. <laughs> um, but you know, even just like the incentive to host those, you know, days of giving once a year um, and we would just pull together, you know, groups of women at the studio and um, have really great conversations around career and um, just family and balance and all those things. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, everyone contributing towards the same cause. It was just, it's like such a good excuse to get people together, but I'm excited to see this grow and, and reach beyond 
you know, your immediate network. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What One of the things that Jordan and I were talking about is how, you know, like you, what you've always inspired me about is like also being like just really strong in your positioning about like speaking up for what's right. Mm-hmm. I know that um, you and um, a group of women had gone to the Boston March in 2016 for the Women's March Mm-hmm. The new one's coming up. So I'm curious if you're if you're going to anything on the 19th. And then additionally, as a powerful ladies raising two sons, like how do you raise them differently or how do you include them in this stuff to, you know, kind of pay it forward to that next generation as well? Yeah. I mean, God, I feel such a huge responsibility raising boys um, right now. And I have to say, I feel like they're just miles ahead of this generation. I I don't worry about. <laughs> yeah. They're like so aware, and maybe also just the thing I love about raising them in Boston is Boston is a great city in terms of the diversity here, the progressive kind of political nature here um they're definitely surrounded by people with a really broad um i think understanding of the world and and even just like their friends at school or just from all over the place like all over the world speak so many different languages um and and yeah i mean we we have very open conversations around things going on in the world politically and mm-hmm. um you know, I think Mikhail was the first person I saw on the day that the day after the elections, you know, and I'd gone to bed that night, not knowing who was going to be president and then woke up in the morning and was just devastated. And, um, Mikhail walked 30 in the morning for school or whatever. And he came in and he's like, did she win? And I just lost it. I like was shaking my head. No. And gave him this huge hug and I was just sobbing. And he's like, mom, it's going to be okay. You know, like he's, they're, they're so positive. Um, and like, it's only for four years. You know? <laughs> and, um, yeah. So I, I do need to look into what's going on on the 19th in Boston. Um, and, you know, we did the, we did the March for our lives together mm-hmm. as a family as well. Um, last year and that was really impactful and so relative to the boys I mean they just really understood it um and so yeah I mean I just I definitely want to keep keep doing things like that with them as a family I think it's really important I think as a team at work I'm um you know even just being a brand having having a brand that has the ability to stand by certain things and, um, you know, make sure that we're always spreading message ultimately of inclusivity and mm-hmm. acceptance and love and not being controversial for the sake of being controversial by any means, but, but yep. being, being willing to stand up for what's right. Um, awesome. Is platform, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, um, kind of closing questions we kind of have here are, you know, 
hopefully simple, but it's it's also to give people who are listening some places to go and tips. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first one is if you have a favorite quote that kind of drives how you approach life. And you're welcome to get back to me too if you need to yeah, circle back. To back to <laughs> like for the fear of sounding really cliched, um, I am like such a believer of the golden rule and mm-hmm. and reach that to the boys all the time and just with work and everything. I mean, I'm just, I believe in karma and, and um, you know, what goes around comes around. So put best foot forward and treating people with empathy and love and respect on just a really basic human level is so crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably find like a more beautiful quote, but <laughs> whatever you find we can we can put under your picture on the on the okay. website yeah it'll be like a yearbook um and then are there you know podcasts are there blogs are there books that you're reading now that like people just have to start listening to because it's providing so much for you yeah I mean I'm really working on deepening my practice with meditation so I've been poking around different blogs on mindfulness and meditation um the 10 percent happier i love that one thing yeah um and especially if you've been listening to it for a while right he's just they're, they're definitely getting like deeper and deeper into kind of the the quest i think um oprah's super soul conversations i think are really good mm-hmm um, I love Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History. Yeah. And then his new one um, with Rick Rubin, the Broken Records, are just kind of fun and interesting. I've always been a big fan of This American Life. And mm-hmm. I just, I love, oh, yeah, and then like Guilty Pleasures, of course. There's like Serial and Dirty John. <laughs> <laughs> like not good for your brain, but um, good escapes, I guess. I think they are good for your brain. Yeah. People talk through have been, who've been through harder stuff than I have is really inspiring and like really motivating and just a good context kind of Mm -hmm. that check, right? Yeah. Perspective builder. No, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the the final question we uh, are starting to ask is, on a daily, on an average day, mm-hmm. where do you feel you are on the scale of human to powerful lady? Assuming powerful lady is the equivalent of like Wonder Woman. So do you feel like you're mm-hmm. on, where would you put yourself on that scale on, on an average day? On an average day? This is like the Pisces in me. I am so, I'm just like a constant roller coaster. I think I <laughs> will admit to my own, you know, insecurities and so I have days where I feel really high I feel like I do feel like Wonder Woman like today I rocked it I woke up I did some breathing for 10 minutes I made it to a yoga class I actually exercise you know Uh days when you feel like you've put in a day before your work day starts is amazing and then I've got all this patience and my temperament is cool and you know Mm -hmm. I'm like make it home for dinner and I cook and I just like rocked it at a photo shoot at work or whatever, you know, like definitely have my days where I feel I'm doing pretty good. 
Um, and then I definitely have my days where I feel really insecure and like, I'm not good at my job and I'm a terrible mother. And you know, <laughs> what have I done for my husband lately? Um, but that's the beauty in it, right? I think yeah. you need you need the lows to feel the highs and, and vice versa. So um, I don't know. I would say I'm just scratching the surface in general on being a super powerful lady, um, but I'm working on it. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> so then, yeah, yeah of course. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been, you know, this is an example of like when you dream about something and what it can go like, and then it like blows you you're like you blow yourself out of the water and like all I'm doing here is just listening. And so thank you so much for making this way better, bigger, more awesome than I could have expected. Um, And thank you for inviting me and just, it's good to talk about stuff that you haven't talked about in a while too, you know? Awesome. Well, thank you, Kara. It's an honor for me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Please give the boys all hugs and there'll be plenty of follow-up for all of this and, and what's coming next. It's amazing how there's always more to learn about someone, and this episode with Elizabeth proved that. She was already on our Women Crush Wednesday list, and I'm left 10 times more inspired. She proves you can have a family, have a life, do great work, and create businesses that allow you not only support your family, but also express your creativity and passions. At Powerful Ladies, that's the game we're playing. So check out the Powerful Ladies website and shop to find tools and inspiration to take your game to the next level. You can show Elizabeth your support, by following York Athletics on Instagram at York Athletics MFG and send her a note. Tell her what this episode meant to you. Then head over to YorkAthleticsMFG.com and try out a pair of their new amazing sneakers. They're getting five-star ratings with over 389 submitted reviews. Those are just the reviews people are submitting, let alone all the other chatter that's out there. They're amazing products. Don't forget to also check out the surprise collab that will be out by the time this episode is available that Elizabeth mentioned in the podcast. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing here at Powerful Ladies, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Leave a review on any of these platforms. Share the show with all the powerful ladies and gentlemen in your life. Join our Patreon account. Check out the website, thepowerfulladies.com to hear more inspiring stories, get practical tools to be your most powerful, get 15% off your first order in the Powerful Ladies shop, or donate to the Powerful Ladies One Day of Giving campaign. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. For show notes and to get the links to the books, podcasts, and people we talk about, go to thepowerfulladies.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. She's one of the first female audio engineers in the podcasting world, if not the first. And she also happens to be the best. We're very lucky to have her. She's a powerful lady in her own right, in addition to taking over the podcasting world. She's a singer-songwriter working on her next album, and she's one of my sisters. So it's amazing to be creating this with her, and I'm so thankful that she finds time in her crazy busy schedule to make this happen. It's a testament to her belief in what we're creating through Powerful Ladies, and I'm honored that she shares my vision. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life, Go be awesome and up to something you love.